You are listening to NeuroPodcases, a neuroscience podcast created for medical students. Please go online to Vital where you can download supplementary case notes to accompany this episode. Hello and welcome to another edition of NeuroPodcases. I'm joined once again by Dr. Regan Cooley, a stroke neurologist from Canada. Well, thanks, Dr. Williamson. Always a pleasure. Thanks, thanks for coming back to discuss um, what is the first in a two-part special dealing with acute stroke management. So I want you to imagine that you are it's 10 o'clock at night, you're on call, and you're pre-notified that a stroke is on its way to the emergency department. So it's a 78-year-old male, he's right-handed, and he's a retired electrician. At 9 o'clock in the evening, so one hour previously, he noticed sudden onset difficulty speaking whilst talking with his wife. And associated with this, his wife noticed that his right face appeared to be drooping, and there was some weakness in his right arm. Mm -hmm. He has a background history of high blood pressure, ischemic heart disease, he's a type 2 diabetic, and he has raised cholesterol. He also has benign prostatic hypertrophy and he had a TERP procedure three weeks ago. His medications are atorvastatin, 40 milligrams, aspirin, 75 milligrams. He's on metformin and tamsulosin. He's an ex-smoker, drinks moderate alcohol and he lives with his wife. Okay, so that's the story you're able to get. And then in terms of examination... He's got a blood pressure of 190 over 90, heart rate of 100, saturating well, and his blood sugars are 6.8. Mm-hmm. Neurological exam ev- uh, demonstrates evidence of an expressive dysphasia during the conversations, but his understanding appears intact. He can obey two-step commands without any difficulty. There is a right facial droop which has an uppermost neuron pattern, so the forehead is spared. On holding his arms out straight, he can lift both arms off the bed. However, on maintaining right arm posture, his arm starts to drift to the bed in a pronate, uh, with a pronator drift evident. And his, sorry, so his NIHSS is scored at 10, and that's uh, picking up the deficits that we've discussed there. So I'd like to begin uh, more generally with acute stroke patients that you assess Obviously, time is very limited in this setting, and you have to take a focused history. What are the things that are very important to know? Okay. Yeah, so uh, stroke, acute stroke is a fantastic setting to be in because there's a lot of action, a lot of pressure to get things done quickly. But it's also very important to slow things down in your own mind at the very least and approach in a very calm fashion because that makes things go smoother. Um, So when you look at the history, the first thing you think about is Number one, is this a stroke? Uh, for him, it very much sounds like it. We have an acute onset with focal neurologic deficits. Uh, stroke creates focal deficits along with tumor, trauma, infection, inf- inflammation. But I mean, the acuity of this all points towards stroke. Yeah. Uh, when you're taking history, you want to take into account something that's going to prevent your treatment. Right now, any acute stroke coming in, you want to think about treatment to restore function as best you can. So what is going to take him out of the category? Is he on anticoagulation? Is he completely dependent on uh, other people for help at home, in which case there's not much function to restore? Has he had a recent surgery or trauma that would preclude him from getting thrombolysis? Uh, he has had a TERP three weeks ago, so he's out of the window for, uh, for complications with that. Uh, it would make you a little bit squirrely, but at the same time, we're talking about an acute neurologic deficit versus some systemic bleeding. Okay. So your first thought is, 
is it a stroke? And clinically, sounds like it could be, certainly the onset would fit with that, and it would be with a, a neurological deficit. Mm-hmm. And then finally, you're thinking about the reasons why you would or wouldn't treat yeah. this patient. And then I mentioned there about the NIHSS, which is perhaps a scoring system that students may not be familiar with if they've not seen acute stroke patients. Are you able to just tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, the National, National Institute of Health score, Stroke Score System. Uh, so what it is, is a, an evaluation. It's a very easy and reproducible stroke score that you can give a patient coming in to determine their level of disability, I suppose. Um, it's Good things are it is reproducible and it's used in all the trials, so all the evidence is based off the NIHSS. Uh, drawbacks are it's very language heavy. Mm. I mean, you can see that as language being such an important tool, and it really neglects the posterior fossa when it comes to stroke severity. Okay, and uh, his score is a NIST of ten. So where does that kind of uh, rate in terms of severity in your opinion? Yeah, it's getting up into the severe category. He's got an aphasia, uh, albeit expressive. It's still quite disabling for people. I think. Most of the studies that really NHSS suggested a score of 16 or over predicted, it was a good predictor of mortality for the stroke. So this is getting to the severe category. Okay. And then um, maybe laboring the point slightly, you've said this is a, it appears to be a fairly abrupt onset focal neurological deficit. In terms of localizing, are you able to sort of localize any further oh, yeah. with regards to that? Localization is the heart and soul of stroke neurology. Um, yeah, it sounds like he's got a left MCA distribution. Uh, he's got expressive aphasia, so I'm leaning more towards the superior division of the left MCA. He's got a hemianopia and mild right motor deficits as well. So that all comes together very well. So you're looking at the left hemisphere here, and in particular, the area supplied by the left middle cerebral artery mm-hmm. would be of interest. Okay, so what's your priority at this stage? So right now we want to go through the history. We've already got our exam. Uh, make sure he doesn't have any contraindications for treatment, and then we need to get to the scanner to see if this is a bleed or a stroke. Okay, and uh, you can see there the, well, that's exactly what happened. So they got into the scanner very quickly, mm-hmm. and you have the, the scan in front of you there. Mm-hmm. So um, I've got the report available, but I'd just be interested uh, in your opinion on what, what is this scan really for, and what is it, what else are you able to get out of a non-con CT? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So what we want to see on a scan in an acute stroke is absolutely nothing. On a plain non-contrast head, the best thing you can see is nothing at all. Um, what you don't want to see is any hyperdensities indicating hemorrhage of any sort, would be intracerebral, subarachnoid, subdural. Uh, and you don't want to see large areas of hypodensity indicating established infarct. Mm. Um, yeah, little tricks that you can get into are a hyperdense vessel in the non-contrast ET head as well, indicating a large vessel occlusion as well. Okay. You looked at it with the radiologist and they confirm there is no evidence of intracerebral bleeding or intracerebral hemorrhage and uh, there are no obvious signs of early ischemia either and there's no evidence of a hyperdense vessel. So uh, I guess we're then on to terms of treatment. So what are your treatment options at this stage? So right now we don't... We've got something indicating a large vessel occlusion clinically, but we don't have evidence of it radiographically yet. When we look at the CT, and he doesn't have any contraindications, so thrombolysis is the standard of treatment in this setting. He's well within the last known well time. I think it was one hour. Mm -hmm. So that's very good. Uh, The best best results after thrombolysis are those within the the golden hour, as they call it. Um, So that's our priority right now. Some people even sneak in there between the CT 
and the CTA to give the thrombolysis in this setting. Okay, um, and in terms of giving the thrombolysis, I mentioned his blood pressure was 190 mm -hmm. over 90. Mm -hmm. uh, is that going to be a problem before you can give treatment? Yeah, so we want to get it down. There's The goals are 185 over 110. Uh, all the research indicates that there's more symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage if it, the blood pressure is higher than that on either systolic or diastolic. So what we can do for this guy is we can use a little bit of levetalol, which is very quick and easy to deliver in small doses that drop it. We can also start an acarticine infusion and dial it down or dial it up as needed to get his blood pressure down to the point where we can administer the thrombolysis. Excellent. And I guess it would be useful for the students to, to have a little idea of what the conversation you would have with the patient mm -hmm. or, or the patient's relative about the risks and benefits of thrombolysis. Mm -hmm. uh, are you able to just share with us what yeah, you would talk yeah, about? Yeah, for sure. So like I, like I indicated, thrombolysis for acute stroke is the standard of treatment these days after the trials came out. Uh, the NIMS trial was the first one way back in the day that changed everything for stroke. Uh, but it's been much more refined and we have very good selection criteria for patients that we kind of talked about all the exclusion and inclusion criteria already. Uh, we need to make sure blood pressure is well controlled, glucose is intact, which it was. So when I speak to a patient, which sometimes is hard, especially if they have a language deficit or in fact anosognosia, a right MCA syndrome, it's hard. So it's easy to get family on the phone typically. I usually quote about a 3% chance of symptomatic hemorrhage from the administration of thrombolysis. That's the most common side effect mm -hmm. that we're, we're looking out for. Other things to look out for, at least with the alteplase, is angioedema, which is a sneaky little guy that you need to keep your eyes on as well. Uh, I've only seen it a couple times, but people that are on ACE inhibitors are much more prone to it as well. And it can, it can get you into a pretty tight spot where the throat swells up to the point of needing anesthetics in ICU. Okay. Um, and what would would this change uh, your decision making if you were to discover that the patient was taking warfarin if he had a history of uh, DVT or P or something like that would require warfarin? Yeah, we need to check uh, INR very, very accurately. We need an INR less than 1.7. So you could still thrombolize, but you just need to, to check yeah. that. Yeah. And what about the newer uh, oral anticoagulants? Yeah, so right now um, there is a reversal agent for dabigatran, idrocizumab, Darastizumab? Darastizumab? <laughs> uh, that can be administered before thrombolysis. Um, now, whether you do that or not, that's a bit of a higher level conversation. If you're at a thrombectomy center, you might just skip the time with reversal and thrombolysis and go straight for mechanical thrombectomy rather than running the reversal and the risk of bleeding with that from the thrombolysis. Uh, Apixaban, there is a reversal agent in the works. Add next alpha, but I don't think it's made it out of the trials yet. Okay, so I guess uh, the learning point for the students would be that the story's not over if the person happens to be on an anticoagulant, but it adds a certain level of complexity that you would need to uh, you need to think about. Uh, and you did mention it, but the, so the patient did have a TERP three weeks ago. And you kind of feel that he's out of the sort of the concerning time period. Mm. Are there any absolute contraindications for giving thrombolysis where you would never, never consider? Yeah, so any absolute contraindications include active systemic bleeding, history of intracranial hemorrhage, recent intracranial surgery, uh, arterial puncture in a non-compressible site in the last two weeks, uh, a stroke within the last three months on anticoagulation, Mm -hmm. or, or, or INR greater than 1.7. Those are the absolute. The rest are kind of a, a relative contraindication that you can work around. Okay. 
Um, so it's, I guess it's good to have an idea of those in your mind, and you probably have those in your mind at all times when you're when you're seeing patients. Yeah, you try to you try to address all those things in the history that you're given. Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So um, he had the CT head and went on to have thrombolysis. Um, and uh, would you do any other imaging in the acute setting as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So it took a little while to get going, but now the standard stroke imaging is non contrast CT head and CTA because, of course, stroke is not a disease of the brain, it's a disease of the vessels. So you got to take a look at the blood vessels as well. Uh, so typically, you want to take a picture from the arch to the vertex, capturing the top of the aorta and going all the way up through the carotids into the intracerebral vessels. Okay, so that, that's done and no large vessel occlusion was seen. So this, uh, this gentleman was admitted to the stroke ward, mm-hmm. he received thrombolysis and what do you then do? What, what happens next? So after thrombolysis, you're going to put the, perco- or the observation much more frequent. So I typically do hourly observation. You want to make sure the blood pressure is well controlled, checking for severe headache, decreasing the level of consciousness, anything that's going to indicate symptomatic intracerebral hemorrhage, mm-hmm. in which case you need to take action. Yeah. So if somebody develops a severe headache or starts dropping their level of consciousness, um, you need to stop the infusion and reconsider what's going on. Yeah. Scan them urgently, and then you can start treating it as an intracerebral hemorrhage. Okay. And this is the, the patient's first stroke that he's had, although he obviously has lots of the traditional risk factors for stroke. Mm-hmm. Um, would you? What other investigations would be needed in the sort of coming days to, to weeks? Right. So coming out in the wash here, uh, the immediate diagnosis and acute treatment of stroke is just the beginning uh, of the job of the stroke neurologist. Now you have to figure out why the stroke happened so you can stop another one from happening again. Uh, trying to put yourself out of employment, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um, so now you want to look at the cause of his stroke. So he is a 78-year-old gentleman. So when you think about cause of stroke, you look at the vessels to see if there's any large artery atherosclerosis that could have embolized in him. That's easily done in the acute setting. Uh, now you want to look at the heart for any cardiac causes, including atrial fibrillation, which is the most common and easily treated, mm-hmm. uh, left ventricular thrombus, something that crossed through a patent foramenal valley, although he is a little bit too old for that. Mm. Uh, address his small vessel risk factors, of which he has several mm-hmm. there, including hypertension, diabetes, smoking, sleep apnea, hyperlipidemia. Um, you yes. can get into genetic causes of stroke, such as Cadisil, Milas, Fabries, but those are getting to the weird yeah. and wonderful... And, and you're, you're not doing that in a 78-year-old so Definitely much. Definitely not. No. Okay. No. Good. And then, uh, finally, just a hypothetical question, really. Um, this gentleman was very lucky that he was with his wife when his symptoms came on. Mm-hmm. He got to the hospital very quickly and therefore got treatment very quickly. And actually, he did very well. He went home a couple of days later mm-hmm. just with some outpatient speech pathology uh, follow-up. What would have happened, say, if he hadn't been so lucky and he presented over an hour, or let's say he presented at five hours. What are your thoughts about that? So now with all the studies done to treat stroke out of the traditional 4.5 hour window, there's a lot of evidence to support giving thrombolysis and mechanical thrombectomy with extended, uh, in the extended time period. So you can use special imaging. Some people use CT perfusion, which is done where we are right now at the Royal Melbourne Hospital. Uh, there's a lot of fantastic evidence supporting that. Uh, and if you have a favorable penumbra versus core, you are safe to give thrombolysis. Uh, a lot of trials were done for extended thrombolysis using 
uh, MRI DWI versus flare. So if there's establishment of a DWI change indicating acute ischemia, but the flare change has not yet been established, it's safe to give thrombolysis as well. I mean, that really came about because if we think about our lives, we spend a third of it asleep. So the stroke could have happened a minute before you woke up or a minute mm -hmm. after you went to sleep. So I think in the future, it's not going to be a uh, dedicated time period that makes people eligible or not. It's going to be more of a tissue issue. Okay, excellent. So what tips would you have for students about how best to approach the acute the, or the hyperacute stroke setting, patients coming into ED with a stroke? What are your top tips for them? So you want to establish a quick history including any of the contraindications, such as medication, recent surgery, any history of stroke, any history of bleed. Uh, you want to do a quick exam, but thorough exam to pick up all the deficits to say whether you want to treat the stroke or if it's a minor, minor stroke that will not benefit from thrombolysis. Mm -hmm. Scan them quickly uh, and make sure that they are eligible for thrombolysis or uh, mechanical thrombectomy. Okay, thanks very much for that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. listening and if you have any questions about this episode please contact us at neuropodcases at gmail.com look out for future podcast episodes coming soon